Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Three weeks gone and the combatants gone, returning over the nightmare ground, we found the place again and found the soldier sprawling inside. The frowning barrel of his gun overshadowing. As we came on that day, he hit my tank with one like the entry of a demon. Look, here in the gun pit spoil the dishonoured picture of his girl, who has put Steffi, forgiss my nick, a copybook gothic script. We see him almost with content, based, and seeming to have paid and mocked at by his own equipment that's hard and good when he's decayed. But she would weep to see today how on his skin the swart flies move, the dust upon the paper eye, and the burst stomach like cave. For here the lover and killer are mingled, who had one body and one heart, and death, who had the soldier singled, done the lover mortal hurt wow every time i read that but that poem the guess my nicks by keith douglas it always kind of you know hits you a little bit in the stomach um a bit like the burst open stomach but anyway welcome everybody to we have ways of making you talk about the battle of alamein yep alamein week <laughs> and we're here of course with me james holland with al murray of course and john mcmanus our pal in the united states of america and actually, a lot of people don't realize it, but the U.S. played a much bigger role in that summer in the Western Desert than many people appreciate. No, please, Jim, don't shatter my <laughs> Anglo-centric. <laughs> it's an entirely British victory. What are you talking about? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, John. Um, you can go Blast now. for me. You can go now, John. That'll do. <laughs> okay, I'll see you guys. Have a good one. <laughs> Welcome, John. And of course... Um, one of the things we've been talking about uh, uh, already is that this that the Eighth Army anyway is a is a is a is a British Empire army, Dominion's army, it's a Duke force, a Duke force as we like to call it. Um, so I mean, it may come as a surprise though to some that 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 there is considerable American involvement in this story, and not 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 just in the German tanks that arrive to be the backbone of um, a more advanced armored capability for Eighth, uh, Eighth Army, but the strategic big picture. The intelligence picture, the air force picture, and in fact, running through the whole thing, there's um, American involvement. Where do you want to start, John? What, what for you is the first sort of standout American contribution to the Alamein picture? Well, when I think of that, I mean, I think of it almost as the Lend-Lease picture as the foundation. This is what sort of got the U.S. into the war in the first place: is deciding, you know, what we're going to supply the Allies with everything they possibly need, and then we're going to pretend to be neutral. Um, you know, so that's how we're led into the war. And yeah. of course, you got all the pressures of the Pacific that, that's going on, but there's still the priority for Europe. And FDR feels that very strongly. And he's really concerned about what's going to happen in the fall um, elections in 1942, the congressional elections that possibly you'd have uh, quite a few Asia firsters who tended to find a home in the Republican Party more than the Democratic Party. He's a little concerned about that. So he really wants to buttress the, the Europe first policy any way he can. And I think one way to do that is, you know, to, to step up uh, the pace of uh, providing needed weaponry to the British, in addition to protecting the Suez Canal and avoiding this nightmare scenario, the Axis controlling Middle Eastern oil. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's, there's no question that the Middle East oil is far more greater benefit to, to, to Germany than it is to, 
it is to the British. Um, but you know, it's it, I think it's worth just pointing out that that on the twenty first of, of 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 June went to Brook Falls. You know, Winston Churchill is with FDR, and and FDR immediately says, "Okay, what well, what can we do to help?" And literally, as if he'd already prepared the line. Churchill says, give us as many Shermans as you can spare. And he goes, all right, I'm going to give you 300. You know, I'll see what I can do. Talks to Marshall, and Marshall is 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 kind of splutters and goes, okay, chief, well, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do, um, and, and sends them over. And, and I think they sail on the 12th of July, don't they? Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> the other thing about that, if the Shermans are going to the Middle East, then they're not going to the buildup of U.S. forces in, in the United Kingdom which means you're not going to have your so-called second front in France in 1942, which, I mean, it, this may... Sledgehammer. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm an outlier among U.S. historians, but to me, that was always just a complete pack of no nonsense doubt. that you could well, begin yeah. to pull this off. Uh, the yeah. British, in my view, were, were so far ahead of the Americans in terms of their understanding of the current state of the war and the, the importance of air power and sea power and launching invasion, the, the Americans were always so over-optimistic uh, that I, I really don't... And these were smart strategists, Eisenhower, Marshall, um, you know, many others who were quite influenced by them. These are people who are going to end up in key roles in the war and for good reason, yet they somehow think that Sledgehammer and then later Roundup, you know, can be pulled off um, and would be productive. This is something I've always wondered about. Do they really think they're going to be able to do that? I mean, I'm amazed too, but there are some pretty high class strategists who seem to really believe in this. And, you know, George Marshall, Eisenhower, yeah. when he finds out that Sledgehammer's yep. a no go, he, he writes, This is the devastating day says, in history. He is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, in a way, there's a kind of, it's, it's a bit of a Soviet centric view of the war at this point yep. the, uh, that the Americans have because they're, they're really concerned about a Soviet collapse. And, you know, they see Roundup as a way to kind of fall on their swords for the Soviets. It also, and I'm not saying that the, the military strategists are affected by this, but certainly the White House is. Um, the left is just in a, in a froth over a second front because, you know, that's what Stalin wants. So uh, much of the left, the labor unions and whatnot in the United States are taking their cue from that. So there's a lot of political pressure to yeah. have this. And, and of course, there's cynicism with the idea of getting involved in the Mediterranean and the Middle East as sort of just helping the British Empire. And so FDR is running against those those tides in a way. What happens is is the Molotov comes over and he comes over to Britain in in May and says, you know, we really need help, we need the second front, we need to do all this stuff. And the British sort of pay him lip service, say, yeah, 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 quite, quite. So absolutely, you know, we are we're fighting in you know Africa and drawing troops away, and you know we're, we're going to continue our bombing, blah blah blah. Um, um, look at us, we're just about to do the thousand bomber raid. Um, and then he flies over to Washington and says, you know, we really need to start you a second front, and front front immediately. And Marshall sort of goes, yeah. Bring it on! You know we're we're absolutely pumped. We're good to go. You know we're 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 building up in England. That's exactly but, our plan. But so the, they've kind of promised Molotov, and they've got a they've got themselves into a bit of a pickle where it, where it becomes even Bo Eisen has absolutely guts and says it's the blackest day ever. You know there are some other heads who are realizing that this just isn't going to happen, and, and at this point Churchill says, "Well, look, I've got I've got this brilliant idea which could kill two birds with one stone." Well, because he knows that's what's realistic, and, and it's realistic, and, and and frankly, it is a really good plan. And and uh, whichever way you look at it, it's a, it's a, it's the well, best plan for the circumstances. The other thing is that you know you have an entire generation of U.S. officers who have been trained um, that strategy in winning wars means going straight to the course, yes. straight yes. to the source of your enemy, and, and collapsing them that way. And obviously, yeah. that's France and straight into Germany. Yeah. So to them, the Mediterranean is tangential. Yeah. So the British and American approaches to strategy are completely well, different because the British but, is opportunistic and, and kind of probe around until you've got the weak spot and then exploit it. Whereas well, as you also, say, John, the American is draw a straight line to Berlin. And the, and the British way of doing it is get, you know, you've got a global empire, so get them to come and fight you somewhere at your convenience <laughs> rather than, rather than <laughs> at theirs. Um, and wear, wear them out double, doubly because, you know, inevitably your opponent won't have, won't have a navy that can compete with the Royal Navy, blah, blah, blah. And, and yeah. I mean, he is, I, I have, I, I, it's always one of those things after Overlord and, and actually how difficult all this stuff turns out to be. There's sheepish people later on who go, well, thank God we didn't try that in 1942. Or is it just quite one of those things that's quietly forgotten? I think it's quietly forgotten. <laughs> it's like, hey, that wasn't us. Don't look this way. Don't yeah. look at our diaries from 1942 and our policy papers and all that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, but you know, the other thing too, 
uh, this is just emotionally and culturally. The Americans hadn't had the same experience as the British had, at least in relation to Europe. The, The British had had terrible traumatic experiences of being kicked off the continent basically twice. Uh, and I don't know that they're eager to go in there and tangle again anytime soon. The Americans have that experience in the Philippines, of course, uh, but that has no impact on how they're viewing Europe. And if it, and the idea is, well, if it's to be Europe first, Germany first, well, then let's get after it. That makes sense, except you don't have the ships and the planes and the troops. So Right, right. But, <laughs> yeah. but in the case of Eisenhower, I mean, Eisenhower comes over in, when is it, March, I think. And, and um, uh, doesn't he, he comes over first, doesn't he? And reports on what he says, there's, there's some colonel, isn't there, or Brigadier General, he's in charge, and he's making a bit of a hash of it, and it's all a bit slack, and no one's really got that kind of best foot forward. And he goes back and says to Marshall, look, you know, I'm not really that impressed with how it's all going. Um, I really think you need a change of personnel at the top. You need someone who's going to kind of, you know, kind of be able to report back well and going to kind of, you know, do what 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 you and and the government wants and and really kind of go for it. And, and Marshall turns around and goes, "Well, I think that person is you." And he goes, "What me?" And he goes, "Yes, absolutely you." And an off fight goes. And his his number two is, of course, is Mark Clark, who has already made a name for himself as a someone who's who's. He's won a um, distinguished service cross, I think. I believe in France. He could be wounded in 1917, the first sort of um, scraps over in the First World War. So he's got combat experience, but he's also got very, very good administrative experience. He's, he's done very well in the kind of Louisiana maneuvers and all this kind of stuff. So he goes over as Ike's number two, and when they get over there, that's that's what they're focused on: is this, this cross-channel invasion. So psychologically, you, you've you've prepared yourself for this momentous thing. And, and that's where all your energy, all the focus of your uh, your intellectual power, everything is going towards that. And then suddenly you're told that it's all off and actually you're going to go to Africa. Psychologically, that that sea change is just a bit of a, a bit of a jolt. And that 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 famous kind of diary entry from from Eisenhower where he says, you know, this is the blackest day and all this kind of stuff. To be fair, he and Clark both get over it pretty quickly. And once they start <laughs> realizing that actually they've got their hands full, just sorting out torch as it's going to become called you know the invasion of northwest africa which is being planned they come around to it very very quickly i think and i think you can see that in the literature when you read the kind of you know the harry butcher diaries and he's this, this naval aide that mike knows he yeah, goes with right. him and basically kind of records what he's up to and all the rest of it but it's this very entertaining diary but both him and clark very... who are kind of in charge of it you you can see that 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 they they are not long in coming round to the good sense of of, of this operation and and once they're behind, once they've converted, they're hundred percent, one hundred twenty percent behind it, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And Clark, of course, famously even goes into, uh, you oh, know, into French right. Northwest Africa ahead of a time to, to get a sense of uh, trying to obviously to try and cut a deal with the Vichy French and to try and make sure you're not going to have resistance and all that. And that you know that takes some courage, obviously, to do yeah. it and some belief, I think, in the concept, I suppose. Um, yeah, Clark and, and Eisenhower were pretty good partners, too. They'd known each mm. other a long time since West Point. Uh, Eisenhower was two years ahead of, of Clark. Uh, their their wives knew each other well. Um, uh, Clark had helped really redesign and modernize the, the American ground forces, basically the triangular division. Uh, Eisenhower had a great deal of confidence. Just to explain what you mean by the triangular division. Yeah, so the triangular division meant basically that uh, you're going to have three regiments that comprise a division rather than four, like you had in World War One. In World right. War One, you had these big ungainly divisions with four regiments that were divided into two brigades, like twenty six thousand guys. Um, World War Two, they're much more nimble in that they have three regiments, and they have to be in part because of shipping. You know, and, and a regiment, I should just say, is like a, in an infantry regiment. Is, is like an infantry brigade in the British system. So exactly. that would have three battalions. So you might have the, I don't know, the 133rd Regiment, which would have the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd battalions, and the 134th and the 138th or something. That would make up your, your division. Exactly. Yeah. And they I mean, have those know, the battalions. And then and, and all the companies are labeled A, B, C, D, and then the next three, and then next four. It was it was such a great system, in my opinion. As, as a student of the U.S. Army and one who has followed it from World War II through now. It's, you know, from the 1950s on, like post-Korea, it almost seems to me like it's designed to be as confusing and (laughs) and jumbled and chaotic as possible. In World War II, they preserved the old regimental lineage for all these 
great units like the 16th Infantry, the 7th Infantry, the 18th, you know, it goes on and on. And yet they had this sort of modular system that was the same in every unit, most, 1st, 2nd, 3rd Battalion, always known as Red, White, and Blue. And then the companies, A through D, E through G, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you knew exactly. And it's it's kind of fun for my students, by the way, when I, when I teach this, because they, they learn very quickly. I'm like, okay, so if I'm a member of A Company 7th Infantry, which battalion, which battalion? am I in? Yeah. And they're like, first, it's got to be first. And they feel yeah. like military experts then. Yeah. Nowadays, nice. it's like, okay, you're in uh, B Company of the the 4th uh, Battalion and this uh, first maneuver brigade of this, that, and the other. You know, and you're just like, wait a minute, wh- where are we? It's it's absurd. Well, yes, and you can be the you can be the second rifle brigade, but actually, which is just a battalion and part of um, <laughs> which is part yeah, of part of part of the seventh motor brigade, which is then part of seventh armored division. It's all very confusing. You can yes, be but, kind of next to the sixth Durham light infantry. But this is a fu- this is a function <laughs> of this is a function of bureaucracies, aren't they? Is they they've got to find give themselves things to do, haven't they? Um, this is sort of, <laughs> feels exactly. like feels like sort of pe- <laughs> a sort of peacetime secretion rather than a. a <laughs> Uh, uh, like a wartime essence of how you would do a thing. Um, I mean, the other thing, of course, that's obviously going to put you off doing Roundup and Sledgehammer or whatever, is that the British are performing very badly um, in in this spring-summer of 1942. So you might be looking at the war and thinking, well, you know, what what actually can be done, which leads directly to Churchill's appeal to um, uh, FDR after Tobruk, is that, that, that... Actually, rather than a cross-channel invasion, got to be a bit, bit, bit more realistic here. I mean, it's, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's, I mean, because things are going very, very badly for the British at this stage. They did, can't tie their bootlaces, and the the British army has kind of got a voodoo, a, a sort of complex about the Germans that they can't beat them. I think. Yeah, but 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 don't forget, up until the end of uh, up until the end of May, when when Rommel launches his attack and, and it all goes pear shaped very quickly, there is no expectation that they're going to lose. You know, not from, yeah, but, not from London. Well, I'd, you know, yeah, so so the, the so the, the London's not watching the, the things crisis. closely enough in North Africa. No, but, but, but maybe not. <laughs> but 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 the, the it's four weeks between Rommel's attack and and the fall True. of Brook on the twenty first of June. Yes, but, and the but, expectation is that the, the more troops are coming in, more troops are going out to North Africa. That the uh, American lend lease is coming in. Mm. That, that American troops are arriving in Britain, which means you can release divisions from Britain. Who are on home defence? They can now go over. So, so there is a there is a growing confidence that actually this can be done. Yeah. Then there is this massive setback, which no one's been planning on, which they then have to kind of take into take into account. But as we as we know, you know, by yeah. by the third of July, Rommel's attempt to kind of hustle his way through is over because yeah. his attack yeah. attacking the Alamein line in the beginning of July doesn't work. So by the middle of July, which is the the time is certainly what we're talking about when these decisions about, you know, sledgehammer and moving it to torch and all the rest of it are taking place. That's kind of that one's sorted. And once once you know that that's sorted, then it's sort of okay still, again. I think. You still got to have the. I mean, the the, the within the American military establishment, that's there must be this tension between how the British have actually performed to a, to a, to a great degree. You know, I mean, you're talking about one one period where things have settled down. Where if you look. As, as John points out, the British will be kicked out of the continent twice. Um, uh, there's been a sort of jumble of things happening, and what's happening in the Far East isn't good either. The, the, but, but, and yet, at the same time, the British, when they come to confer with the Americans, are super organised, super pessimistic. Um, say, I can't do that, can't do this, old boy. There must be. <laughs> you're absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a terrible idea, sir. Right, it, must... it clashes with this sort of innate American optimism. Precisely, well, we're in the war now, so so don't worry. We're going to win. Everything under control. Yeah. We're going to win, yeah. Yeah. and we <laughs> we can do this, and we can do this, and this, and and it's great to have a can-do attitude. But when it's yeah. at variance with reality, then there's yeah. a problem. I mean, yeah. well, it's, Royal it's, Navy's it's... in crisis in mid 1942, and the United States Navy is too. Yeah. So that's what's going to have to buttress these these grand plans. If you can't control the U-boats, you're not going to be able to do anything. So you're lucky to do any operations in North Africa, much less what's happening in Malta. Mm. Um, you know, so the, the Americans come into this with this expectation. Well, you know, don't worry. Things are under control now. We're here to help. And then I think they just have to kind of come up against reality and, and take a reality pill. And it's the British. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, they, because the, the delegation comes over on the, uh, in, in the third week of July to London to discuss sledgehammer 
and almost immediately just go, the British say, look, chaps, we've been thinking, you know, I know we said we were up for it, but that was just basically to get you in the war. Um, and basically, in, you know, at Arcadia, we were happy to say anything you wanted to make sure that this was Germany first policy. Truth of the matter is, our heart was never in it. We all knew that this was absolutely never going to happen. We aren't, we're, we're out. And everyone goes, and all the Americans are going, what? You know, well, what can you mean? They go, well, we have this other idea. And, and within four days, you know, they arrive on the, the talks over on, on the 20th, you know, it's, it's by the 24th of July, it's a done deal. You know, gymnast is on or, or torch as it becomes. Mm-hmm. It's suddenly the new, the new strategy. And I think, I do think even torch is quite punchy when you're, when you're, as mm-hmm. you point out, you know, the, 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 the war in the Atlantic is by no means over at this point. Even though summer, it's kind of easier to maneuver stuff around than it is in winter. Yeah. I mean, in the, when the days are longer. In the really big picture, it's a really brilliant concept. The, the whole anvil concept, hammer and anvil. I mean, El Alamein on one side and the torch on the other, you really capture the, the axis in a vice. Now, how you're going to pull this off is another matter altogether. Yeah, Eighth Army absolutely. has the luxury of being able to build up, reinforce, resupply, get its leadership on track. You know, they have that luxury in part because of the war in Russia. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and then, yes, the, the U.S. is able to muster enough to, to put some forces ashore in northwest Africa. Uh, of course, what happens after that is is another hash up too. Um, so it's it's you know the the concept is great. The implementation is really difficult. But, well, but the it, implementation, you know, this idea that you have three invasion forces, you know, one coming three thousand miles, the other two coming a thousand miles each, all landing due to land in the Mediterranean, which at that time is hostile, um, at the same time and at the right place, and they and they do, I mean. The enormity of this project is is just off the radar, and, and you know this is one of the reasons why I, 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 you know, when I look at Clark's performance in Italy, I always cut him quite a lot of slack just from the start of it because basically, from the point of view of the ground operations, is his plan, and you know he's he's you can't argue that that Clark doesn't do a superb job in organising the invasion force of 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 Torch. I mean, obviously, it's the navy that's the, the mm-hmm. navy's navies. That are delivering it, but delivering them, but it's his concept and and hmm. and his preparation that's got the troops ready for it, and that's no small achievement when neither side has done anything of this scale well, ever. And when well, there was, it, was, wasn't an American army really um, two years previously. I mean, it, right? I in mean, we consider in a meaningful the, sense. You know, it's, you've been in the war for less than a year, yeah, and you can already do this. And in addition, by the way, to the the what's going on at Guadalcanal. Yeah. Um, and what's going on in New Guinea, which are absorbing significant U.S. resources there. Uh, no, I think it's I think absolutely remarkable, the resilience. But you're so you're seeing you're seeing something the the, the kind of operational brilliance you're going to have later on when you have these massive amphibious invasions and all the coordination. Yeah. You know, by Normandy, they've reached the, the, the sort of expert stage on, on some levels. Torch yeah. is the the sort of beginning of this, but they're they're hardly novices, you know. Hmm. Um, okay, so uh, well, that's the strategic picture. Um, uh, um, the the uh, intelligence side of stuff, which sort of keys into this, uh, the, the, the the most famous sort of uh, part of this picture is the unfortunate business of uh, Bonafellas. Although in the end, he sort of come comes arguably comes good because his pessimistic reports about Eighth Army. Um, prompt, prompt FDR to act. So <laughs> you, 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 you know, it cuts both ways. The bon, Bonafellas thing, but I mean, uh, for those who don't know the the the, um, the story, uh, John, do you want to just uh, uh, live it out for us, sure. it out for us? Yeah. So Bonafellas was the uh, U.S. military attaché in Egypt, and he was, of course, sending all these very detailed reports uh, back to Washington about the state of Eighth Army, the the war in North Africa. Uh, the geopolitical situation in Egypt and so on and so forth. Um, his communications are being read by both the Italians and the Germans who had um, broken, I think, broken into the U.S. embassy in Rome yeah. uh, and, you know, appropriated the codes and all this. And Fellers really had no idea of this. And so Fellers was a great source of intel for Rommel, ironically. Um, Fellers is an interesting cat. I mean, he had been, he was a West Pointer. He had graduated that accelerated 
class of 1918, you know, to try and get them into the war as quickly as possible. He'd been around the block um, quite a a bit in in his career. Um, And he was sort of a psyops guy, too. Uh, he, he had, you know, is going to flirt with the OSS. He's eventually going to end up with MacArthur as yeah. his military secretary and psyops guy. He has a lot of different um, layers to his military career. In this one, the irony of ironies is that he's he's kind of anti-British, um, yet he's right there uh, reporting in such a way that it really helps the British. Yeah. I mean, it, to be sure, he wants to help the British, but also there, there's this contempt there too. Yes, he's um, very, very down on on, on things, isn't he? And uh, I mean, yeah. the, uh, his information's coming from sort of talking to people rather than actually, he's not going through anyone's files, is he? He's, it's the impression he's getting of what's going on. His friends he's talking to, his contacts, sort of because attache stuff rather than he actually, he's not reading Eighth Army's reports. Is he? it's not, it's, he's, not in, he's not that well uh, informed, is he? So no, he's a, a networker. Yeah, he's so a networker. Guesstimates and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he is just talking to, to various folks. I mean, he lives in the staff world in a way, but he also, he's not averse to talking to soldiers too and uh, and some lower level commanders and whatnot. So, but he is a networker who has built up the all these sources, which, as any military attache should. Hmm. Um, yeah. he's, he's very much in tune with what's going on at Cairo. But also, I think he has a good feel for Eighth Army and something of its capabilities. You don't often see that kind of combination. So he's really an asset, but it just so happens that obviously his communications are compromised. Yeah. Um, and we don't know this for what the better part of what nine months or or a year, whatever it is. It's you know it's partially what leads to the Tobruk disaster. Yeah. Um, you know that the Axis know precisely what we're doing. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, Bonnerfeller's, you know, eventually, you know, he is not really going to pay the career price for this. It really wasn't quite his fault. Um, you know, so he is, you know, eventually going to be sent back to, to work with the OSS and and then on to MacArthur's command the rest of the war, uh, where he plays a pretty key role on MacArthur's yeah. staff. Yeah, because yeah. he'd spent the 30s in the Philippines before the war. He had. So, so he's, yep. I mean, and it, it, it's... I mean, it's it's interesting because because um, Seabohm shut down around about the same time, isn't he, Jim? So um, yeah, so yeah. Uh, uh, he's Rommel captain Lu- in July, in mid July. Yeah, so Rommel Seabohm loses goes. these two info streams. Was it the six hundred and twenty first radio? That's right. Whatever it is. Yeah, but but those are. But I mean, it's it, it also it also does show that the Americans are really keenly watching what's going on. I really want really want to know exactly exactly what's happening. Rather than necessarily the Brit take the British's word for it um, uh, uh, as to how things are going, because because you're going to get a, ro- a rosier picture in London, aren't you? The new the new will on the ground, and th- 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 yeah. does that does that indicate that the Americans don't trust the British, or that they feel that they they feel that they feel that they better not trust the British? Or I mean, what's What's that? What's it? I just think a lot of the Americans are very leery of getting drawn into the British imperial designs yeah. in the Mediterranean, and yeah. and so if we're going to be involved in this, there better be a damn good reason. Is the yeah. thinking, and and where this stems from, in a way, is the the disillusionment with World War One, uh, because yeah, there's a sense, absolutely. you know, because of the Treaty of Versailles and all this, that you know we had fought that war in order to advance British imperial designs. Yeah. Um, there was profound disillusionment with that. And yeah. so, you know, remember, it's Japan that had brought the U.S. into this war, um, you know, and, and then Europe just kind of follows along because Hitler's dumb enough to declare war on the U.S. and whatever. So there's still that element, whether in or out of the military, uh, of opinion saying, hey, let's be careful. Let's not, you know, start shedding our blood for the, the further into the British empire here. Yeah. And, you know, and you could, all you do is look, take one look at eighth army. It's a Commonwealth army. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so I think a lot of it, they're like, eh, I'm a little leery about that. And at the same time though, too, I should say there's concern that the Germans are going to have this nightmare scenario where they'll come down from the Caucasus and then over from Egypt and, you know, in a pincers, uh, yeah. you know, grab Middle Eastern oil. And that gets everyone's attention too. And there is un- there's no question also that the very new and young um, U.S. Army, it, it is an opportunity for them to kind of flood themselves, learn some of the lessons against, certainly initially at any rate, a comparatively straightforward opposition and, and kind of test systems. And, you know, do tank destroyer regiments, for example, do they work? 
you know, this great concept of, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, do you know what I mean? But I mean, that, 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 yeah. that's one of those, those things which is, was unique to the U.S. Army and, and, you know, what a better place to try it than in the kind of, you know, yeah. southern Tunisia. Well, and as it turned out, they needed it. They really needed that seasoning. Big time. Most of the units did. Even the Big Red One, the 1st Infantry Division, doesn't acquit itself very well. Uh, initially, at what we call the the Kasserine Pass, the Battle of Kasserine, that's actually the better part of the battle, you know, versus yeah. the, the first debacle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, I think the Americans have to to face a little humility, too. Uh, you know, rather than this idea, well, here we're here to save you guys. Um, yeah. Actually, we've got a long way to go and a lot to learn. And I think the North Africa campaign serves that well. Um, I think it also made great sense to to provide the British with all that equipment that is going to pay off at El Alamine. Uh, the Sherman tanks famously, of course, but plenty of other stuff too. Yeah. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk about the Battle of El Alamein. And we're joined by the peerless John McManus. America comes in recognizing that air power is a key to this, that it's absolutely locked in with ground operations. They're hungry to kind of learn new techniques and new ways. And, you know, what's the difference between strategic air power and tactical air power and all this kind of stuff. And they do send over, you know, a not insignificant number of heavy bombers, but also fighters as well. I think it's two fighter groups and, and one heavy bomber group to start off with. There's the Halpro detachment, isn't there? Um, which is a kind of sort of half unit, which is supposed to go to China, but then they kind of think, okay, well, that's not going to work. Clamps in Burma, so we might as well send it to the Middle East. And there's this integration within the Desert Air Force and all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, there's a movement of, of, of General Russell and then, then General Lewis Brereton gets sent over to set up a, a strategic air force. And, you know, there's quite a lot going on, isn't there? It's quite a big commitment and a diversion away from, again, from Britain to the Middle East. And and from the Asia and Pacific theater to the Middle East, right. too. Yes, of course. So all this means tough choices, so it's going to have opposition. MacArthur is very much up in arms about this at a time when we need those B-24s uh, to, to be hunting down Japanese shipping and, and also, you know, dealing with the, the U-boats and everything else. Uh, so this is controversial, but obviously it's it's a choice that, uh, that FDR feels has to be made, and I think probably events prove him right. Um, it's also very interesting to me that Louis Brereton ends up in the mix here too. 
he's one of the ultimate survivors in this war, isn't he? Uh, yeah. From a brass <laughs> point of view, I mean, yeah. he had been MacArthur's air commander during the debacle in 1941 and 42 in the Philippines. Um, and though we can't pin the whole, you know, Clark Field debacle on just on him, certainly he plays a role uh, in in the the U.S. losing about half its planes, you know, partially on the ground. Um, and then, but just the fact that he gets out of the Philippines and doesn't become a POW is, you know, a bit bit eye opening. And that then they put him in charge of what at that point is really the lead aerial show from a from a U.S. standpoint. And then, of course, later he's going to be he's going to be in charge because he is, well, he's respected for his flying record, his World War One record. But he is like Fellers, he's a networker. He is yeah. a guy who understands keenly almost to the savant level how the the administrative side of the war effort works the bureaucracy who to to stay on good terms with how to cover your own tracks and i mean he, he's done this if you take a look for instance at his report to the philippines he does this brilliantly i mean you don't have to respect it but you do have to say wow this guy understood a lot about covering his own tracks uh, <laughs> without seeming to do that yeah. um so I don't want to paint him as too big of a Byzantine figure, but also he was he was slippery. You know, he he understood a lot, and he and he had a he had a genial manner about him that that yeah was people like him, don't they? People tended to like him. Yeah, Mary Cunningham gets on with him. Um, Mary oh yeah, Cunningham yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and I think that's one of his strengths actually is I think he 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 gets on well better with uh, with the British and other allies than he does sometimes with his U.S. colleagues. Um, you know, Ridgeway, for instance, gets along pretty well with him, but but. It really doesn't have a high regard for him, well, and I it's constantly they, sort of. I suppose what? they don't know his reputation, so um, you, you the know, British, yeah, <laughs> the British are new people for who you have yet to discover that he's going to write some ass-covering report later. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's this amazing interview, isn't there, with with Mary Cunningham and Lewis Brereton, and I think it's for Time magazine. Right? I can't remember who it is, but but they get interviewed by one of the kind of high-profile. And, you know, it's kind of Alamein time and they're saying, you know, so how do you, how do you get, you know, you've got an American Air Force with a British RAF Air Force, you know, how do, how do you get on? And, and Mary Cunningham goes, well, you know, I need something from the Americans. I ring up Lewis and, and I say, come on over for a sundown. And, um, and Lewis Brereton goes, yeah. And when Mary calls me, I, I come over to him and I, I know how the Brits love their gin. So I come over <laughs> a bottle of gin and we, we chink glasses and we sort it out. Yeah. I mean, that, and it's all very harmonious, and it's just completely fantastic. <laughs> and that continues when he's, a, you know, at a first Allied Airborne Army. I mean, it's yeah. all yeah, the way yeah, through yeah. the end of the war. I mean, that's, yeah. I that's mean, the strength of Brereton. It, there must be a sense, though, the sort of strategic machinations aside, that this is where the action is, right? So mm -hmm. if you are an airman who's keen to learn and wants to develop stuff that you're going to need to use later all over the world, this is where the action is. This is where, where you, you can actually put, these, put your ideas into practice rather than carry on theorizing. Yep. They're those kind of people, aren't they? They, they? they want to get in, they want to find out if their ideas work, rather than remain in the abstract. And that, that's particularly within the air community, there's, there's, been a lot, there's all that debate boiling on, and it boils on particularly in, uh, about strategic bombing. But that's driving people to you know, put aside their qualms about the fact it's not an invasion of France or they're not in the Far East. And you know, this is where you can learn your trade right yeah i think that's especially true of the combat flyers yeah that this is the place to be in action this is the yeah. place where you're you know this is why you're a pilot this is why you're a bombardier or whatever that you know you want to be where the action is yeah. um if they couldn't send you to fight uh, in the war against japan which might have been your first choice you know if you're like the typical u.s aviator at that point this was the place to be and of course, every pilot, fighter pilot dreamed of being an ace, you know, shooting down Italian and German aircraft and all that. They found that the war was a lot less glamorous than that, of course. But yeah, I think it's a good point. But it is interesting also that the 98th Bomb Group, which is the first bomb group that comes over, you have the Halpert detachment of B-24s. And then I think they get absorbed back into the 98th Bomb Group. I remember right. But, but mm -hmm. the 98th BG, I mean, they are the only heavy bombers um, in the Middle East. I mean... The British, the RAF never provides any four-engine bombers ever outside British shores. I, I think, well, I mean, obviously they go to, no, I don't think they ever do. I don't think they ever do. There's no heavy bombers in Italy, for example. I know mm. at the end of the war, they're going to be sent to Japan or whatever, but they never actually get there. So this is the only long-range heavy bombing group that is in operation in North Africa. You know, Lancaster sometimes are flying to Italy and then 
then stage in you know Tunisia or something, but but later on in the war. But that's quite a that's not an insignificant contribution. And then you've got these two fighter groups. And what's quite interesting about them is that the, the, that splits them up and adds them into the desert airport, so that the, the squadrons get attached to a fighter, a British fighter wing, or an R, you know, a desert air force fighter wing, where they can kind of pick, you know, so they're they're all in the same landing ground together with a, you know, maybe a South African fighter squadron and a and a British fighter squadron, and they can all kind of pal around and kind of learn tactics and kind of you know sharpen their teeth and stuff. Um, and and again, that seems to me an incredibly sensible way of doing things. Absolutely. Well, it also shows you how you're going to to operate together as allies. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it, you're so culturally similar. You have the linguistic similarity, shall we say? Um, you know, I mean, all of that is doable. Uh, the Italians and the Germans aren't doing that with no, each other. Not at uh, all. There is no all. crossover at all. I mean, they don't even not show intelligence. Right. Exactly. It, 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 and even the feller stuff, you know, they're, they're both reading the feller stuff and sometimes they don't even know it. The other has it. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that was already a good uh, sort of you're seeing exactly how these allies are going to work together. Uh, I think as a U.S. flyer, you would learn a lot from these guys who have flown in the desert uh, and have survived, managed to survive against a pure operator because you don't control the air. And you can imagine what a lab that is to learn in. Uh, the B-24s, I mean, <laughs> that, what makes them popular is that, like you said, Jim, they're, they're the only heavy bombers, you know, in play in theater. And it's I think it's very interesting where they send them to Ploesti because they understand yes, exactly right. how vital those Ploesti oil fields are to the German war effort. So even though the, the, the big fighting is happening actually in North Africa, these guys are going on to Floesti too, and that was a harbinger for what was going to happen later on too. I mean, although that also shows, I mean, it's interesting that the British don't deploy heavies to, to the, this theatre. It shows that the British content with area bombing, whereas the American strategic bombing thrust is for specific targets, is for industrial you know, infrastructure yep. resource targets, rather than contenting yourself with dehousing civilians. And, it, and also, I mean, it also speaks to the optimism of the American strategic bombing campaign at this point, doesn't it? That it thinks, well, we'll bomb the oil fields, but that that's a, that that will have enough leverage in itself to uh, to dam- damage the German war effort properly. Which, of course, further down the line is a sort of not how they're thinking anymore. But it's interesting that that it character it it shows that character of the American approach to strategic bombing, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, that's that kind of silver bullet approach. Yeah, uh, saying okay, eliminate their oil. You eliminate their war industry. Later on, you'll see this at Schweinfurt and Regensburg eliminate their ball bearings, and you basically are going to collapse their war effort. If we project even farther on into the Vietnam War, Operation Rolling Thunder during one yes. of its phases uh, targets petroleum, oil, and lubricants in North Vietnam, and says, okay, if we can destroy that, and we'll bring North Vietnam to its knees. Um, always problematic these ideas, but you know, obviously, it does give you insight in, into the thinking. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And John, what about what about Americans actually fighting on the ground? Because there are some, aren't there? Yeah, there's a few. Um, this is the interesting thing, is that you'd had some very idealistic people who had, uh, even before the U.S. entered the war, decided, I need to be fighting against Nazism, against fascism somewhere. Uh, so they had joined the British forces. These were uh, Ivy Leaguers, sort of elite yes. uh, people. Uh, and it's what's what's really kind of interesting to me is you know, you see this element of a sort of idealistic U.S. opinion kind of on the elitist side of people volunteering pre-Pearl Harbor to go fight against the Axis, uh, either like in the Eagle Squadron or for these, uh, there's several guys who end up in the British forces uh, fighting at El Alamon. I think there's five of them. That's right. Um, what you don't have is idealistic people going to fight against Japan because uh, where, where were you going to do that? You'd have to go to China, and that means just the Flying Tigers. And if we're being honest, most of them are mercenaries. They're being hired by Chiang Kai-shek to go and fight. And, of course, they're, they're pilots. They want to fly and fight. But you, if you wanted to fight against um, uh, the Nazis, you at least had that alternative of joining the British forces or the Canadian forces and going and doing your thing. And that's what these guys do, and they, they fight. You know, I mean, they're involved in the whole demining thing. Sure. I mean, they're they're involved in intra units, tanks. You know, and a lot of them are, are uh, several of them are, are wounded very badly. I mean, it's <laughs> just the the name of one of them, uh, a guy named Rob Cox, uh, who is 
long lineage and tradition in uh, of sort of the the upper crust in the in the U.S. And here he is fighting with the British forces at Al Alamein. It's really interesting to to see this. I think there were eighteen overall who fought. That's at right. Al I think there were. Um, I, I I I toured the Alamein battlefield with Rachel Cox, who was there doing research for her book that she subsequently wrote about those those five five that she picked out and focused on actions at Alamein. She was lovely. Very nice person, and and just totally fascinated by the whole thing that these these uncle this uncle of hers could fall in Alamein. I'm pretty sure it was her uncle. It's a completely different time and place, and yeah. very much ahead of the head of the rest of their countrymen. Yeah, 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 yeah fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And there was another guy who went he yeah. went over and, and drove an ambulance, didn't yeah. get in as, a, as he was an ambulance driver, and then managed to get out of that and and ended up. Fighting for the Gurkhas, being an officer in the Gurkhas in Burma, he ended up at the admin box. Oh in, yeah, in February nineteen forty-four. Amazing. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, they did they did go on their journeys. And when the British victory at Alamein comes, are there conclusions that the American army draw from that? Are they are they watching the battle? Are there are there people on the ground observing um, with Eighth Army, going right? Okay, th- th- this is food for thought, or are they looking at it and going? We're not going to do things like this. We've 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 worked our own our own way of doing things out. Because after all, you know, it, it it becomes a characteristically British battle, or the b- British battles then take on many of the characteristics that um, Montgomery sort of displays at Alamein. You know, like heavy preparatory bombardment, uh, colossal cracks, all this sort of Monty fighting. Uh, are, are the U.S. Army looking at that and going, "Well, we're going to do actually, we're going to do things differently," or maybe he's got things figured. I think they're studying the armor side, right. especially uh, because the, the armor side of the U.S. Army, the, these folks uh, think they're almost comparable to the the naval aviators, you know, at this time who think, uh, well, we've we've just completely reshaped and transformed warfare. We're the future, as a, as opposed to these stodgy old battleship types and whatever. Yep. The armor people are like, okay, well, this is brand new warfare. We're going to have tank and maneuver warfare. Uh, versus the infantry that's still stuck in the trenches back in World War One and all this, and so um, El Alamein seems to, and the Desert War as a whole, not just yeah. El Alamein, it seems to offer this sort of new vision of the tank as the lead weapon of war. Yeah, and I, I think that <laughs> the Americans are also going to sort of learn some of the wrong lessons from that. Yeah, uh, of believing that they can fight the, these sort of mass tank engagements and mass maneuver. The desert terrain allowed you to do that for a time, but if you're in built-up urban areas or amphibious invasions, that's a different animal. Yeah, and that's generally yeah. what you're going to be doing. So, yeah. I think that in so in that respect, the U.S. Army takes some of the wrong lessons. Um, from an engineer standpoint, I, I think it's there's great lessons learned about how you're going to deal with minefields. Um, right. You know, and a lot of controversy, obviously, as to the way the British did it and whatever else. But um, I think there's a sense that this isn't going to be a one-off. That you're going to have to deal with uh, getting your engineers forward and and operating in combined arms as much as you possibly can. I, th- I do think that that's going to be one of the strengths of the U.S. Army is how they're going to use their engineers. Yeah. Oh, is there anything else we need to pick John's brains about, Jim? Um, <laughs> well, of course, there's, there's <laughs> there, there is it, for, forever. Um, never uh, been, but Shelby, it's good. Yeah. I mean, the reason we haven't sort of focused too much on on what happens at Torch really is because obviously that that happens. After the Battle of Alamein, you know that's yeah. that's the kind of yeah, next right. thing. But I do think it's um, it, it's good to be talking about the American contribution in, in the summer of 1942 and the and the contribution to the Alamein Battle as well, because it, it it is absolutely very real. And I think particularly when you know you think about all the machinations that are going on back in London with Clark and, and Eisenhower and the preparations for Torch and the bigger strategic pictures that are going on at the same time. But also, I think really it's, 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 you know, I know there's those handful of volunteers in the 8th Army, but it's right from the outset getting it that air power and land power and naval power are kind of, you know, they're a three-way brotherhood. And, and yeah. you see the Americans getting that. The, the first available opportunity they can to, to kind of pitch in, get some experience and, and think about things in a different way, they do it. Because heavy bombing, which is absolutely the thing that they're allied to, you know, and dominates the strategic, you know, dominates the kind of air thinking in the 1930s. That's a strategic operation. Whereas what they're doing in the Middle East is is tactical. And I think it's really, really interesting that they go in there with, with such an open mind. And although the kind of nine um, bomber and fighter groups, which are earmarked for the 9th 
um, the 9th U.S. Army Air Force. Only three of them have got there by the beginning of October 1942. That's still quite a level of commitment at a time where they're also trying to set up 8th Air Force as well in the U.K. And it is a tacit understanding, I think, acknowledgement, I think, that right from the word go, the moment that torch becomes a thing, that that is also going to include a lot of air, air power as well and air resources. And this concept of close air support, of, of, of tactical air force, they're so open-minded to it. You know, and you see that with people, Brereton absolutely is, but, but, but you know, people like Tui Spots who are sent mm-hmm. over to kind of help sort out um, 8th Air Force and then almost immediately gets transferred over to kind of the Mediterranean. He's totally up for it. He gets it. You know, he's, he's, he's the big strategic bomber, but he understands the importance of tactical support as well. And I think what's in, what is so fascinating about this moment is that the Americans, right from the word go, they might not understand what what they're letting themselves into with something like Sledgehammer and this kind of idea that you can get, a, get across the channel in 1942. But they are very open-minded to the potential of, of air power. And you see this, this develop, this idea that you've got this hard carder of, emerging air commanders, whether it be Tedder, whether it be Cunningham, whether it be Brereton, whether it be Pete Casada, Jimmy Doolittle, whether it be Tui Spots, all these guys who, who suddenly find themselves converging into the, into the Mediterranean theatre, the Middle East theatre, are completely up for it. And, and, and the, there is this tangible level of excitement about the potential of what air power can achieve. And, and they're, they're open-minded to it. They're like sponges. They just kind of like, let's bring it on. Let's do it. Let's learn it. Let's work out how we can how we can take this on. And I think that's very exciting. And it, and it's and you can see the the seeds of success in Tunisia in May 1943, and subsequently, you know how air power is incorporated into land operations in the rest of 1943 and into 1944, right through to the end of the war. You can see it in this moment in the summer of 1943. Yeah, I mean they're they're basically you know they're innovators. They're writing the doctrine as they go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's very exactly. exciting for them. That's an excellent point to sort of round up, really. We start at the beginning of the year, the sort of naive state of, oh, we'll invade France at some point later this year. So by the end, no, the actual business, the actual business of learning how to do this war is in front of us and we should, we should grab the opportunity to do that. And that, that American attitude is, is sort of st- is staggering, really. It's so hard, I think, sometimes for people to, to, to think of the US before the Second World War when it's not the global, the global military superpower with aircraft carriers yep. absolutely everywhere it wants them and, you know, uh, and bombs that can go around, the, right. bombers that can go around the world in a day and all that, all that sort of stuff. The huge infrastructure, the, 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 the business of there being a Pentagon that's a thing that people know about in their lives and that's talked about on the news, that this has all happened from a standing start, that not even two years is absolutely... It's, ama- it's staggering, isn't it? Is it? Phenomenal. it is staggering. It's phenomenal. And coming out of the Depression, too. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. It's just incredible. It really is. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for joining us on our uh, little series of El Alamein. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> we will see you very soon. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jim. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.